I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. For those of you who are already part of the Talking About Our Generation family, welcome back. And for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. This podcast is all about connection, sharing, caring, communicating, aimed at baby boomers like me, those of us born between 1946 and 1964. We're about remembering who we were and what we've accomplished and what all that means today, right now, because that conversation is really important. The cumulative stress of living under the previous president and the pandemic took their toll on a lot of us. We're recovering, thank God, and after a brief hiatus, we're bringing you our conversation with a remarkable man. Michael Shreve exploded into our young consciousness in 1969 with his earth-shaking drum solo on the song Soul Sacrifice with the band Santana at Woodstock. He had just turned 20. That moment and that event had a lasting impact on our generation. But Michael's story is about a lot more than Woodstock. In many ways, Michael's life follows the familiar road a lot of us have traveled, from a wild youth to our current, more mellow, stage of life. The first part of our interview was recorded in the midst of the Trump years, before the pandemic, before the Black Lives Matter movement, before the 2020 election, or the January insurrection. You can hear a bit of the frustration some of us were feeling at the time, wondering what happened to the idealism of our youth and that old Woodstock spirit. But in a recent follow-up, Michael injects a potent dose of inspiration. He hasn't stopped growing creatively, in spite of the inevitable aches and pains that may prevent him from pummeling the drums like he did at Woodstock. Far from giving up, he's moving on and getting better. His new music is a striking reminder that some things do improve with age. Here's my conversation with Michael Shreve. So you were 20 years old when you played at Woodstock. Yeah, I had just turned 20 uh, a month prior. So pretty amazing to be somewhere like Woodstock. So how did you how did you start out with Santana? I lived in Redwood City, California, about 30 miles south of San Francisco. I was a frequent visitor to the Fillmore West. That was the mecca where all the music was happening. And as a young musician, um, I went there all the time. I saw that there was a a night or a weekend or, or something where Al Cooper, Michael Bloomfield, and Stephen Stills were playing at the Fillmore. For some reason, I called all my musician friends and said, let's go see if we can sit in. And quite reasonably, they, they said, yeah, right, you know, you're crazy, that's not going to happen. So I ended up going by myself uh, just so I could tell myself, at least you tried. I borrowed my father's car, and I drove up there, and I walked right up to the stage before I lost my nerves, and I pulled on Michael Bloomfield's pant leg and said, hey, man, um, I'm a musician. You think I could sit in? 
and I'm really expecting him to ignore me or kick me in the face. But instead, he leans down and says, hey, the drummer's a really nice guy. Let me go ask him. At that point, I'm like, oh, shit. I didn't expect this to happen. <laughs> I just was ready to go back home or listen to the music and say, well, at least I've tried. I put the effort out there. So before I knew it, I was on the stage. And I was shocked to be on the stage. I was so shocked that I don't remember a thing about it today. That's how shocked I was. Wow. And then afterwards, I went backstage, and, you know, even that was a big deal. Look at me, I'm backstage at the Fillmore. And so I must have been, like, 18 or something like that. And um, and the manager and the bass player, from David Brown, were back there, and they said, we have a band called Santana, which I was already familiar with, which I had already seen at a church dance down by where I live with my brother Kevin and said, I really want to play with that band. And so they said, we're thinking about getting another drummer. Can we get your number? So I gave him my number, but I never really heard from them. Cut to some time later, I'm walking into a recording studio that I used to frequent in San Mateo, California to try to get some free studio time for one of my groups. As I'm walking in, this is at, at night, like 10 o'clock at night. As I'm walking in, the drummer in Santana is walking out. We literally pass each other in the doorway. I walk in and a couple of the guys remember me from that night and ask if I want to play jam. So we, we played for a long time and at the end of the, end of the night, they took me in a room and asked me if I wanted to join the band, just like that. Wow. So what was that? Well, it, it, it must have been like 68 or late 67. Or, I'm not so good with chronological order. Uh-huh. But, you know, so they um, they asked me, and I said, you know, let me, let me take a look, see my schedule. I'm joking. I said, yes. They followed me home, literally, to my parents' house. I woke up my parents and said, okay, I'll see you later. And I got in the car where they're waiting outside and drove up to the mission district where they were living. And um, I got on the couch. So that that's uh, <laughs> that's how I got in the band, you know. That, that's pretty wild. So then uh, you, you end up going to Woodstock. And, you know, I'm an East Coast guy. And so um, I, I'm one of those people tried to get to Woodstock, uh -huh. was stuck on the New York State Thruway forever. Wow. What did you do on the freeway when you, well, you the, couldn't it, go it, any further? It was further? the most amazing thing because there were just so many cars. Yeah. And they were so close together that we couldn't really move. Yeah. We were too far to, to walk. And there was obviously no way to hitchhike because nobody else was going anywhere. Right. So we're sitting in this 1967 Mercury Cougar, probably about 10 hours later. We were able to turn around. Oh. I didn't know Santana. Yeah, nobody did. Yeah, and definitely not on the East Coast. It just was not a band anybody knew. Yeah. So my discovery of Santana was through the Woodstock movie. Right. I was, I was in the movie theater with my friends, and we were, like, dancing in the aisles, <laughs> like mm. typical hippies. Tell me what it was like up there for you. Well, amazingly, I wasn't nervous. You know, you knew that it was amazing. All you could see was was people all the way up to the horizon. It was like standing in the sand at the edge of the ocean. So all you see is water, and then you see the horizon and sky. 
And that's how it was at Woodstock. So it's very difficult to, for instance, focus on an individual, you know, because it was just one big sea of faces and bodies. And, and the, you know, the stage was so high. So and then there was this wall where the camera people were. So you were separated, separated, separated from the audience. Right. Our strength, I think, in that kind of situation was that we played to each other, to and with each other. And at Woodstock, we were together as a group, and that's all we needed to sustain it. Now, the interesting thing is, like you said, nobody knew us. Nobody knew it. We didn't have a record out when we played at Woodstock. And so that was another phenomenal thing, that we won that audience over without them being familiar with any of our music. I like to think of that experience for the audience because they were like a tribe and our music was very tribal absolutely and they reacted to it together like a tribe just keep that going the rhythm is the thing that unites everybody uh, to Santana music and um, and I think just the sheer force of the of the music really got to them even though they weren't familiar there was not a familiar song that they knew the interesting thing about what you're saying is that tribal effect because it's like when you're sitting around and uh, you know a, a, a like Union Square years ago or something, and somebody's playing in the square, mm-hmm. and it starts, the rhythm starts bringing you in, and, you know, it's almost like you're this group of little things that become one thing. Correct, yeah. You're, you're playing was so passionate. Something was feeding you. Oh, yeah. Well, I loved, I loved playing in that band, and we were that way about the music, you know? It, it really came off as intense. At that time, before Woodstock, people were liking the band because it was so intense. And it was very tight. We were very well rehearsed. But it was it was one giant rhythm machine, is what it was. And the force of that is what just whipped people's heads around. It was just like sometimes the whole band playing the same thing rhythmically and it's just like a wall of rhythm when you were doing the drum solo in soul sacrifice that everybody knows so well how much of that none <laughs> you know what i was gonna ask right yeah so how does it come to you i mean yeah. You start with the rhythm that you're playing the song with anyway, which is a rhythm around the drums. And then, you know, I I grew up aspiring to be a jazz drummer. So I was very much into what improvisation was. You play a solo and you, it's not the same every time. It, It starts with that rhythm and then you build from there. So, you know, it's completely improvised. And when I hear people say, I spent years learning that solo, I think, you know, why the hell did you do that, you know? I mean, I was just making it up.
in retrospect, every time I don't look at it, because every time I look at it, it drives me crazy when I stop playing the groove and I start doing all this like fiddly stuff, you know, really. And that's like real improvisation, the kind of thing you do in a nightclub or something, you know. And I look at it now and I go, what were you thinking? You know, you got half a million people here. Keep the damn groove going. And it drives me crazy. film for the first time. Did you see yourself on a big screen? Uh, I did, yeah. Apparently there was a screening in LA, but I don't remember that. But I remember being in New York with the whole band standing in line outside a theater and the show before us came out and then everybody started pointing <laughs> at us. And, and that had never happened to us before. Right. So we went in and saw it. And when I saw myself up on the screen and then I saw myself split into all those different you know, into the tri screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't know whether to slide down in my seat or stand up and yell, that's me, that's me. <laughs> that's me, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was unbelievable seeing that for the first time. And then to know later that um, Scorsese did the edits on that. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Very special. When you were playing at Woodstock, did you feel like, well, these are my people? Or did you feel a part of the movement that was going on? You know, the summer of love, the peace and, and love spirit, the community spirit that yes. was happening at Woodstock. Yes. I was really never like, uh, of course, I was a young kid and I was in the middle of all this peace and love and and um, free love and hippie chicks and militant guys. And, you know, I never felt like a part of that scene. Oh, one would think I would, and I still have a soft spot for you know, you know, hippie chicks and that that, that kind of clothes and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, even before I joined Santana, there was a period in my younger life when I moved to the Haight Ashbury to be around what I thought was the music scene. Right, and I I, I practice a lot. I worked hard at getting good at the drums, but one of my mantras while I was practicing was. I'm not a hippie, not a hippie, not a hippie. I'm not a hippie, not a hippie. <laughs> because I wanted to be a musician. I was there because of the music. Right. I didn't aspire to be a hippie. I aspired to be a musician. That brings up a really interesting point. Well, to me, it does at least. Because when you think about that generation, the counterculture, music was huge part of what was happening. Right. Music was where the message was communicated to people like me. 
and it goes back to what you were saying about that tribal feeling. It was one of the things that united me with that community beyond where I was. I mean, you were one of the reasons that we felt united uh, as a generation. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, that all speaks to the music. Um, there were simultaneous things going on in the political realm, in the social realm, where where psychedelic drugs were being introduced into the society that literally was changing people's minds. Yeah. Literally. Um, and then there was the force of the music, but behind the music was the scene that was part of that. When Grateful Dead, let's say it kind of started with the Grateful Dead, let's say, you know, and, and born out of that was, you know, Ken Kesey, and Timothy Leary, all that, yeah. and the love fests and the bus, and and people started falling into this lifestyle, and all kinds of bands started going on. Jefferson Airplane, and um, Big Brother, and as a kid in the suburbs, I could feel this going on. And even though I aspired to be a jazz drummer, as a human being and somebody that was aware of music going on. It was enticing. It was a whole package. I mean, I remember going to see Santana and Jefferson Airplane play an outdoor festival in Palo Alto. And I looked at Jack Cassidy and Yorma and those guys, and I just the way they looked, just the physicality, the way they dressed. How the hell did, do you get to that? You know, how do you get to look so cool? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it yeah. was like it was uh, like pirates or something, you know. Right, um, right. And I remember thinking that very much that um, this is a this is another sensibility, and I liked it. So, like I said in my speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, hmm. um, and which was also improvised, <laughs> I said, I soon learned that this band was no hippie love thing. This band was like a street gang, and the weapon was music. And we were very aware of it. We loved the scene, but we were not hippies. We were not hippies. We related more to, say, Sly and the Family Stone than the other bands, uh -huh. because they were just, when, when we did concerts together, that was like West Side Story. <laughs> it was like who's gonna throw down you know <laughs> i mean i mean that's, that's how it was it wasn't like oh it wasn't being in this band wasn't like you make a mistake and you know like i imagine other bands where they go oh it's cool man you know it was like motherfucker get your shit together you know uh -huh. and uh <laughs> you know there was no messing around it, it wasn't it wasn't like oh at least you're trying sort of thing you know like parents do today Right. We were different in that sense. When I first heard one of the Santana songs on the radio, it blew my mind because it did sound so different. It sounded really different. When you're right inside the middle of it, you don't always realize that. When you step out of it and hear it coming back at you from a familiar source like your car radio, you do realize, wow, that is different. When I think about Santana compared to well most other people who played there I think there was something very sensual about that music 
it, it wasn't mental music, if you know what I mean. Yes, I, um, it wasn't. I agree. You didn't have to think about it. You just went with the music. Yeah, and it made you feel something emotionally. Yes, sexually, whatever. It stirred something in you. It moved people. So, is it safe to say that Woodstock, the experience of Woodstock, changed you? Absolutely. I mean, not the experience as much as the movie. What's the differentiation there? What? what... Well, the concert was the concert. If the movie wouldn't happen, it would just been another concert that was huge. Uh, but since it was filmed and filmed in such a way that was so in your face, literally the cameras were in your face, the way Michael Wadley shot it. Yeah, it was revolutionary, actually. It was, yeah, yeah the handhelds and all of that. Yeah. And so that created another experience for the viewer and brought in a very visceral experience. Much in the same way, I think, that VR is going to do that for music and sports in the very near future. It's going to be that kind of revolutionary change in the experience of the viewer and the listener. It's been a phenomenon. There's no doubt about it. And since Woodstock, it's just always, for the most part, it's just Woodstock blew me away. You know, or your solo at Woodstock blew me away, or the band yeah. like was a highlight at Woodstock and stuff like that. And in my life, it's a phenomenon because it, it overshadows anything else I've done. And it was 50 years ago. So in many ways, that's frustrating for me. Finally, at around age 35, I just stopped and said, stop trying to sell anything new. People don't even want to hear about it unless they dig deeper and check into it for themselves. Just be grateful that people liked something you did as much as they do, and they still remember it, and, it get, and you gave them some kind of joy from the experience. So stop complaining, stop pushing the other stuff, just accept it and go on with your life. I can see how that, as a creative person, how <laughs> How absolutely frustrating mm -hmm. to be defined by an event and not as an individual for what your creative talents are. When did you realize that you were a, in quotes, success? I mean, was it when you saw the movie or when you, did you like have a sense of that when you were on the stage of Woodstock? This is going to change everything? Not, or? not at all. Not at all. You did? I mean, the film was in the theater after Soul Sacrifice it got a standing ovation. So, I mean, 40 years later, when we did a thing at Lincoln Center and they showed Soul Sacrifice, it got another standing ovation. So it still has that impact because it's so, we're so young and we're, and we're beautiful and we're so passionate and it's so, it's just undeniable is what it is. There's just, it's so raw that to this day, it literally, you know, pulls you in and connects you. And so that doesn't go away, I think, for people, it seems to me, because they keep bringing it up on a daily basis. Um, when I first saw something was up is when we went on our first European tour and we went to Montreux, Switzerland, for the Montreux Festival. And I went to the local train station because I, I I was a magazine freak at the time. So I was always going to magazine. And I saw myself on the cover of a magazine called Folk and Rock, which is a really popular magazine over there. 
so I, I was like, oh man, you know, I mean, I looked around me to see if anybody was watching. I picked up the magazine and I was like, man, that's me. It was a, a picture from me at Woodstock. And then I, I realized, okay, this film is going to change things. Uh, obviously for the band, but look at me, I'm on the cover of this thing and I'm not the <laughs> singer, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's when I realized that things were going to change now. And then when the record started doing well, our, our second record, things started happening fast. I was reading something on your website about drums of compassion. And you said that, that it reflects the height of my awareness as a spiritual man. So I'm, I'm assuming that your playing does that just about anything that you're playing? No. No? Okay. I mean, you would want it to, but it's not always like that. You try to approach it in that way. But what I meant by that with this record, which I'm just finishing up the artwork on now, it's taken me forever to finish this record. And now really what it, the theme of it is, it's been called Drums of Compassion Forever. But the compassion now is based on the theme of migrants and immigrants. And, and so it, it was born out of a need to as a drummer, as a musician first, and then as a drummer, what kind of music could I make that I consider like a spiritual frequency that comes from the music? Something with like, I could practically meditate to. That's what this record means to me. So how is that different from, say, your famous drum solo at Woodstock? How is that? Was that spiritual? Absolutely, it was spiritual. It was really heightened, um, but, you know, for different different reasons. It was just... You know, it was magical. And whenever something's magical, I think there's there's spirit involved. I think there's, you know, a, a, a strong a, a strong essence of of the heart, you know, involved. And there's a presence in it when music is done right. There's a presence in it that digs deeper than just, you know, something else. So... Your opinion carries so much weight. I mean, Rolling Stone said you were one of the best drummers of all time in the top 10. That says a lot about who you are and your talents. Looking at music when Woodstock was happening, you were there, and, and the message of the music then, um, and, and how potent it was mm -hmm. in our generation, mm -hmm. in everything that, that our philosophy was for the generation. Sure. And then today, music seems to be unifying people around things that are very different. Yeah, let's say they're unifying people around things like narcissism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I, here, here's what we should have now. We should have a, a song like Ohio or, right. you know, there's something happening here. There's a man with a gun over there. We right. should have songs like that, that are popular songs that are touching on an emotion that so many people are feeling about what the hell is going on with this government. Yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a songwriter and a voice to make that kind of song. Yeah. I think there needs to be, you know, simple, beautiful songs that are calling to the heart 
of the matter of what's going on all around us and everybody feeling so helpless to be able to do anything about it. And, and that what we need now is more humanity and more compassion. So why, why isn't it there though? I mean, what is so different about our generation, do you think, from your observations and as a musician, what's so different about our generation compared to the generation today? I mean, that, that they aren't connecting that way, that they aren't putting out their creative efforts into having a voice about all, this, all these horrible things that are happening in the world right now. I don't know. I can only think that people don't want to upset somebody. You know, they don't want to. I think people are, one, afraid to, like, lose audience, certain audiences because of their political um, association. And and I think that there's a level of apathy in general going Mm -hmm. on, like overload. What we should be is in the streets like the people in Puerto Rico have been. We should be like the people. Like in the streets, like yeah. that. So if you and, the, and in Hong Kong, because that's what should be happening. People should be hundred thousand on the streets, not at a festival. People just want to be entertained. So, you know? so there, there's obviously a complacency going on. But do yeah. you think in music, um, back in the '60s and '70s, that there was less of a lean from the corporate owners on music than there is now? Do you think like there was a lot more freedom in what you wrote and played and put out on albums then than there is now? I don't know. It depends on the artist. I would generally say yes. But on the other hand, record companies always were looking for a hit record back then. The difference is this whole culture uh, back then was brand new and the, and the, corporations being the record companies let's say didn't have a clue about what was going on so they didn't generally they just got out of the way because they didn't have a clue they wanted these these new bands they were signing like the grateful dead and jefferson airplane they wanted the record sales but they didn't know anything i mean they could say you know there's not a hit and the band would say so what yeah, it, that, it's interesting you say that because uh, I've been reading through um, your friend Dale Bell's book on Woodstock, and it talks about the fact that people really weren't doing live albums and how a bunch of live albums came out of Woodstock and that they didn't have a sense. They were more naive about marketing, I should say, than they are. They're yeah, very savvy they today, more, over savvy, probably. Yeah. They were more naive about the whole movement, about what was going on. You know, it's more like Bob Dylan, like saying, there's something going on and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And so they were happy to sit back and just like hope they made some money off the thing. So I have two questions for you. One is, first of all, do you have kids? I have two kids, yes. When you look at them, do they... I mean, they know that you obviously that you played at Woodstock and and what all that meant. I mean, do do you see any carry through in them in that kind of spirit that they know? I'm I'm sure they know what Woodstock was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you see any carry through in them into the kind of people they are today? I mean, I don't know how old they are. So I have a 30 year old son, Sam, 
who's a musician, graduated with four years at Berklee College of Music in Boston. I have a 23-year-old son. They're both very conscious and they're very aware of the political scene, but it's a different time and, and they know it, you know? I mean, my my one son is trying to like make hit records that play on the radio. And that whole business is obviously different than it was. A absolutely, before. it's a whole different scene. Yeah. I mean. People don't play together as much as they used to play together. You know, musicians don't do it as much. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's, this it's, is all the, the Facebook generation where people just... Well, there's no money. There's yeah. It's hard to make a living, you know? Uh -huh. It's hard to make a living uh, with, all, with all the streaming stuff. You mean because of things like Spotify and all that? That's right. That's right. The, the deals that Spotify and those companies do, iTunes, Tidal, they do with the record companies. So the record companies get paid and the artist gets like 0.5 cents for like 2000 streams or something, you know, stuff that you labor over for years and put it out there. And um, so there isn't, there really is very limited chances for uh, like a 21st century Santana to make it like there was back then. Would you say that's true? I, I, I still think that it's possible to do it. I think that, in some ways, it would, you know, those bands do well. A lot of those bands do well live. Like, it's taken them forever to get there. But, you know, all the bands that come from the, you know, the jam scene, you know, from Fish and uh, all those those type of bands, they're thriving now live. Yeah. We recently saw something about, and I can't, forgive me, but I can't remember what they go by now, but the, you know, the remaining members of Grateful Dead, just did their tour and it was was one of the highest grossing tours in ages i mean it was a huge but they I made know. more money than, than they they i think they said that through all their other tours yeah. combined and and with the dead or dead followers a lot of them are not our generation they're younger yeah but that's a anomaly a little bit the dead are you know i mean they live in a universe of their own and their fans that's true <laughs> that's absolutely true yeah you know, so so anything that happens with them it just it, it just continues to amaze me but all the bands are making more money than they ever did right the rolling stones the eagles everybody's cashing in now yeah that's because we i can't afford to go to see any of their shows <laughs> yeah yeah it's all the wealthy who are going uh, i don't want to be in the crowd you know i yeah so, yeah um, yeah, I mean, I remember, yeah. I, you know, I, I used to love being up front, you know, when I went to see Led Zeppelin or uh, I went to see the Stones in Toronto, it, you know, I was like within the first 10 rows and I, I think the tickets maybe cost $20 or something. I mean, yeah. it was ridiculous what they cost. But if to me, if you couldn't be up there by the group, yeah, why go? You know, I could just go listen to, you know, it just to me, it, that was my opinion. But well, they have. They have those big jumbotrons now, right? Right. But that's like watching television. I mean, to me, even though you didn't consider yourself a hippie and you were saying, I'm not a hippie, I'm not a hippie, I'm not a hippie when you were playing, um, there, you're still... Well, when I was practicing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so but the point is, is that you're obviously very politically savvy and your humanitarianism comes through when you talk and the things you care about. So, and that is that generation to a teeth. 
I mean, at least the Woodstock nation, because those were the people who who care more about social justice and were, were not like huge capitalists, even though we all need money to live on and it's nice to be comfortable. But all of that from back then, that energy and everything that it that generation stood for in trying to make a better world. Do you think that since our, you know, our listeners really are baby boomers. So do you think there's a way for us to recapture any of that energy to make it still make a difference in the world? Or should we just go, Oh, fuck it. We're not, we're not going to do it. We're just going to be happy in our remaining years and let the younger generation deal with it. Well, I, I, I think that the responsibility continues as long as you're alive. Um, and I think that our what what should be activating now in us and younger people is a heightened sense of humanity now more than ever. Because of the technology and because of the way things can be swayed and you don't know what the truth is anymore, you don't know, and that's going to even get worse and worse, we have to go to a place that we can trust in order to figure out how do we move from here? What do we do in reaction to the things that are going on in the world? Rather than feeling helpless, we need to empower ourselves for a direction individually. And the only way you can do that is by slowing everything down and turning everything off. And do you think that- We're too distracted. Do you think that's possible? Yes, it's possible. Turn it off. A lot has happened since that first interview. One thing that was left hanging was what Michael has been doing since Woodstock. And it turns out he's been making some amazing new music. And now you'll get a chance to hear some of that. Here's Michael, part two. Hi, Michael. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. How did you deal with a pandemic timing or are dealing with it? creatively it has not been a big blow to me during this pandemic because i quite enjoyed being by myself and um being it's like almost a great excuse for me just to be locked in my little place so i've been in my little music room here really working on several projects i've given my best shot at learning music software so i can move forward uh, making music and stuff even as I get older and my physicality with my hands and arms begin to dissipate, um, that I'll be able to make music. So I've been really applying myself to learning software and got myself a new set of electronic drums over here. Oh, cool. So that I can record into the computer without microphone and having right. an engineer. Right. And then I've got my project with my friends, uh, Stick People, where we um, interview drummers and um, put it out on YouTube and Instagram and stuff like that. Right. I've been I've I've listened to a couple of the episodes. I think it's a really interesting concept. These are like the drummers of our times who you're talking with. And for me, it was like listening to some of these guys talk and names coming up of bands that I, I know. have thought I forgot about. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing the Mahu Vishnu Orchestra and Weather Report and all. I'm going, oh my God, I, I haven't listened to them in so I long. Know. And and 
it's a really interesting concept, which I think you guys should promote yeah. more. Of. We started a long time ago, just the five of us who, who are old friends, Lenny White from Return to Forever and Miles Davis, Mike Clark from Herbie Hancock, uh, David Garibaldi from Tower of Power, and Gregorico, Sly and the Family Stone, and myself, known for Santana, that we were all from the Bay Area, basically, in 69, 70, 71, and what was happening. Uh -huh. Then we started bringing in guests to talk to, like we have Billy Cobham, and we were fortunate enough to get somebody to help us up the game so that it looks more professional and then we could do more with it. So, right. so that's what we've been doing. And it really became like a men's group. You know, and what was interesting about it, or is interesting about it, is that it's a it's a little bit inside, but it's it's this great combination of feeling like you're spying on a bunch of right. people who you want to know about, and yet you understand what they're talking yeah. about for the most part. And I think you've you guys have hit on something. Thank you. It's a little bit of fly on the wall situation. Um and yeah. it became really, like I said, like a men's group. Like we really look forward to spending an hour and a half with each other three times a week and because everybody right. was so isolated and it was it was good and healthy. I love the name, by the way, Stick People. It's, <laughs> it's, it's such a great name. There's a, other things that I want to talk to you about, uh, as well as Drums of Compassion, but something that I was thinking about, I was listening to Soul Sacrifice again uh the other day and i was thinking it's an interesting title thinking about you because you kind of sacrificed yourself to this and it became you in a way for a long time but since then creatively you have gone in a lot of different directions and you've grown a lot what have you been doing well i just decided i wanted to pursue the people and the things that uh, were of interest to me. And I think I've pretty much done that throughout my career. And I also realized that every time I tried to do something that's like a commercial venture, it just never really pans out. Whether it's Novo Combo or Automatic Man or stuff that I spent a good amount of time and money trying to put together, they never really uh, panned out not that musically they didn't, they certainly did, but in terms of success or getting back what you put into it, that sort of thing. Why do you think that is? Oh, you know, some things work in the public and some things don't. Automatic Man never got a chance to really go out there and perform in front of people. The few times that we did, one of them was disastrous. It never got its, its wings, I think. And I think the Novo Combo was a kind of a sound um, in the 80s or something that, you know, I don't know. What I came out of it personally with my understanding for myself on a personal level was don't try to do that. Just do whatever you like, what stimulates you and work with people that you know you find to be interesting and stimulating to yourself and just have a life don't try to pass up or match up like your past success or anything like that don't try to prove something like that mm -hmm. yeah I, I can understand that it's always a sensitive thing but it's like when you're 
a creative person, you have these ideas about what you want to do, but you also realize, you know, I've got bills to pay and all that pragmatic stuff that you have to think about whether you want to or not. And sometimes that clashes with maybe what you really feel you should be doing. Yeah, that's true. But I've, I've, I've done my best to try not to do that because it didn't seem to pay off. But what I originally went for, I mean, I put together a group called Automatic Man. Which was to me a very exciting proposition with exciting musicians from the Bay Area. Was really trying to do something new, like in terms of some kind of heavy funk rock that really was kind of meaningful and just had a groove that was to die for. Kind of like a precursor to Power Station and Robert Palmer's group and that, and that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of psychedelic. And like I said, it just never had a chance to have its wings and and develop into something. Um, so that was something that I, I was very interested in doing and did and worked years on it. Rehearsals daily at my house in San Francisco and then moving to London to do the recording. At the same time, I did that in 76. I also did the uh, Go project with Stomi Amashta and Steve Winwood. And that was simultaneous, but Stomi Amashta came into my life, me hearing him in a record store in Berkeley, California, and then seeing a picture of him after having to do a drum solo every night because of soul sacrifice, I was always looking for fresh inspiration in terms of percussion. And this guy was as fresh as you could get. I pursued him for a year. And on the last day of a 200 and something day tour with Santana, we met up, we hooked up. We were in the same hotel in Paris. And I really wanted to do avant-garde percussion with him. And this is when I'm 22, 23 years old. So I was interested in that stuff. But he wanted to put together a pop thing with Steve Winwood and Klaus Schultz, a, a synthesis from Germany. So I met him halfway because I wanted to work with him. Went to London and worked on both those projects, Automatic Man and Go, simultaneously in 76 pretty amazing stuff are you also composing yeah you are okay so has that been always a part of your thing composing or well yes but i i should preface that with i'm not a trained composer or anything like that but i'm composing now at least in ways that i i can i call it creating music and it's not pop songs so it's interesting stuff and i'm looking for ways to present that material like i just finished like a three minute film that was shot on my iphone and and have put music to it and edited and uh um, well, that that's great because i was like 
when I was listening to your some of the pieces from Drums of Compassion, I was thinking he should be doing soundtracks because yeah. this is great stuff for that kind of thing. But we'll get to that in a minute. But then there was Transfer Blue Station. Transfer Station Blue, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Transfer Station Blue. That was in the 80s. And that came out of my uh, association with Go because that was with Klaus Schultz, who was the synthesis in Go. And I just fell in love with the stuff he was doing and wanted to collaborate. Trilon is yep. another CD. One of my favorites on it was Gotta Get Moving. You worked with some really amazing talent. Some of it was local Seattle talent and others. It was mostly Seattle people, except for a guy named um, James Rotundi, Roto, who played guitar. He's in Nashville now. And then Brian Siskin, who helped on the production. But uh, at the time, it was all Seattle people. Skerrick is very much Seattle. Reggie Watts is from Seattle. But that's a project I just put together. I put some loops together in a computer or whatever. And I just said, let's book some studio time and, and go in and improvise. And um, just let's make something happen. <laughs> I was listening to some of the music that you did with Estan Tone. Oh, Estas Tone. Oh, sure. Yeah, Flower of Life, which was really mind-blowing. Yeah, it's it beautiful. came into my life for me just looking at YouTube videos randomly and finding this guy playing on street corners throughout Europe, playing the most beautiful music. And so I just pursued him, just like I pursued Stomo Yamashtak. This is what I do. I find somebody that's intriguing to me and I go after him and I say, let's do something. You know, rather than wait around, I, you don't wait for a record company, you don't wait, wait for anything. You just get on with your life. In fact, I just finished uh, sending Estas some recordings of something he asked me to put drums on yesterday. We were supposed to tour this last this fall, but it was it's canceled. So hopefully we'll do some more later. I really enjoyed working with Estas. It was interesting. Flower of Life had this kind of flamenco feel to it. Yeah. And I love flamenco, so it really caught my attention. I love flamenco too. And you had also talked about how you were always a jazz enthusiast, which I certainly hear in some of your later things now. I aspired to be a jazz drummer when I was a teenager. It didn't happen. I brought that kind of influence into Santana when I went in, but I'm not a jazz drummer, but I certainly aspired to that. How is a jazz drummer different from a, a rock and roll drummer? different sensibilities, different touch, different influences. There are certainly rock and roll drummers, a handful, that have been influenced by jazz. Like, for instance, uh, Mitch Mitchell with Jimi Hendrix, completely influenced by jazz drummer Elvin Jones, who uh, 
play with John Coltrane. All the Motown musicians came out of jazz scenes in Detroit. So mm. whenever whenever there's a jazz musician that moves into like studio work, for instance, it always has a swing, a lilt to it. Rock drummers are it's a different it's a, it's a different feel. Do you think you've learned things from music about life and yourself that have added to your own personal philosophy about how you live? Does that sound too obscure or? No, not at all. Not just, of course, music opens up if you allow it to. And whatever different kinds of music that you listen to or allow yourself to listen to or are open to, it can open up untold portals of uh, understanding of yourself. So how has it done that for you? Well, in different ways. There's two ways for me. One, because I'm a musician. And two, I'm a fan of music. So anybody who is not even a musician can be completely transformed by listening to music if they leave themselves opening to listening in a deep way whether it's mm. classical music or jazz or all kinds of music as a musician in the pursuit of some sort of excellence in the field it's a never-ending search for one defining who you are through music mm. so you're not just playing music but it constantly demands, at least for myself, that you define who you are through the music you're making. And so that that requires some deep looking into yourself. It's not fluff. It goes deeper. You want to be transformed yourself so that if you're making music, hopefully you'll be transforming somebody else. And you can't do that unless you've been there on your own. You know, it's interesting. I just was listening to an audio book that Yo-Yo Ma did. And I know, I know it. It's uh, it's not audible. Yeah. 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 And I have you listened to it? Yeah. It's one of those audible originals. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting because not everybody has the opportunities that he's had, but you know, he's obviously very influenced in his music by culture, ethnic culture, especially. And it was really interesting when he, people would say, do you know this type of music? You should go to Africa and listen to this or uh, Argentina and, and how we learned more about, um, forgetting his name, the guy who is known for tango, but was actually doing other yeah. types of music as well. Astro Piazzolla. Piazzolla, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you could really see from his words how all this different type of music has really played a role into who Yo-Yo Ma is today as a musician, as a yeah. whole. So that was fascinating. And that's why I think maybe one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about that. That is just that aspect of the whole thing there is, is really important because what Yo-Yo Ma is allowing himself is just what I was talking about earlier, to be influenced by music of different cultures, to let it flow into his personal music. And right. so like that, for instance, that tango music, I know was one of my favorite records in the 80s, like that after Piazzolla record that just came out. And he also was a huge influence on Al Dimiola, the guitar player as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Have you worked with Al? I've worked with Al. Yeah. Okay, that's what it was. It was I have read about you working with Al Miola, and that was a name that I remembered from the eighties. Yeah, Al was a part of that Stormy Amashta project with uh, Steve Winwood and Klaus Schultz, and it's the beauty of music and collaborating with other people is that one thing leads you to another, or another person, or another door, or something, and you have a whole another world there. 
that you would never have known. Like I never knew about Klaus Schultz, who like is you know one of the fathers of German electronic music, one of the founders of Tangerine Dream, and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I feel really fortunate to like you pursue somebody like I did, like Stormy Amashtov, and you find him, and then from there other doors are opened that you weren't aware of before. That to me is my idea of a beautiful life. It sounds like a beautiful life. And taking this to, to what we were just talking about with Yo-Yo Ma and, and, and how the influence of different cultural types of music can make your life fuller, with Drums of Compassion, I hear those things. I hear those elements in the music. For example, water really has a lot of the jazz elements in it, which yeah. to me, that I love that music. It just is a complete turn on for me. I just love, yeah. I could just sit around and listen to that type of music yeah. on end. But that record know? came about by me coming home at two in the morning after listening to groups and clubs and asking myself the question as a drummer, what kind of music would you like to make that you would listen to at this hour of the morning? And it wasn't a bunch of beats. Yeah. It was more like pulse and things like that. Yeah. The water that you're hearing in that piece, by the way, is Igni women doing laundry in a river. Oh, wow. And so I took that and made a loop of it. And that was the pulse in the second piece. And then I found out who the tribe was and I sent money to the tribe. <laughs> That's great. I do want to ask you just a couple of things about the other piece from Drums of Compassion, The Call. Yeah. It seems to have a mixture of African and also Native American and maybe even that, something yeah, else because, in it. Um, the whole record starts off with that voice, which is uh, Babatundi Olotunji. And Olotunji is credited with bringing African music to the state. Olatunji also was the composer of a tune that was on Santana's first record called Jingo. Oh. And it comes from a record of his called Drums of Passion. Oh, interesting. And so you see where I'm getting this Drums of Compassion. Yes. And, and so you start to see how everything's connected. And so I used his voice on that as that's the word. It's like a call to arms. And but it's got Jackie Jeanette on it. It's got Ayrto, Zakir Hussein. Wow. It's got all these great people on it. So is it done? I'm just finishing up the artwork for it. And so when can people start looking for it, do you think? I don't know. I've been working on it for 20 years. Okay, so maybe sometime in the next 20. No, it's, I, the artwork is done, but now I'm ready to change it. I would say in the next half year. Good, because that I, I think people will love that. And we're in LA, so I could hear it on KCRW. Yeah, exactly. Um, that is exactly the kind of music that they love. I mean, it has that whole world yeah. music vibe going. And uh, there's a big audience for that. Yeah. Really yeah. big audience. So that's good. So, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, do you play other instruments? Oh, not really. Not really. I play a little bit of guitar. 
I write on keyboards, like into my computer, but I'm not really a keyboard player. And the only other instruments I'm learning are like kind of software-based instruments. I mean, I've got a piece like right here that I'm learning. It's full of drum, you know, acoustic drum sounds. So it's more like software I'm, I'm playing, although I would be a better man if I started taking basic keyboard piano lessons. This brings up a big question I had for you, and that was, um, you know, like all instruments today, they all now have their synthesized counterpart. And you've answered part of the question because you were learning these new things. But what do you think about how these these synthesized instruments are affecting music like the they're I've always been big on the human touch, you know, your your hands on the drumsticks hitting the drums or guitars, fingers plucking on the strings or what, whatever it is. But sure. now it's being replaced by something sometimes sounds like you can't tell the difference, but and sometimes it's very clear to tell that it's computer generated or whatever, but this has been your livelihood. And so I see from what we've talked about in the past that you always will embrace whatever is there and make it part of your creative life. But what do you think about all that? I mean, I, to me, it's kind of, I don't like it. To me, uh, the best instruments are the ones that are, I'm not so, uh, this box, uh, which is called a Pearl Mimic Pro, is the first time I've gotten an electronic drum thing where it's actual drum sound. And the reason I'm doing that is so I can record drums in my little studio without the need of an engineer or microphones, and I can go directly into the computer. What I like about electronic stuff is not stuff that tries to resemble a real instrument, but rather that creates new and unique sounds with all the uh, available parameters that are with us now. So. I don't care about facsimiles of other instruments, but I am, a, I would say, um, a sonic explorer in, in looking in terms of sounds I can manipulate. And I can still play in rhythm, but they're not necessarily sounds that sound like a snare drum or a tom-tom. So basically you're saying that you can play something on your drums and then you can manipulate what you've played? Is well, that what you're saying? I'm not saying that, but there are other pads and things that you can do that on, or even a keyboard or something that, it's like, for instance, if I, if I lose my ability to play drums because I'm getting arthritis and things like that going on, just because I can't strike it, I can still strike it, but it, it's different than being like out in front of 10,000 people and, and playing a certain way. But you don't lose that rhythmic sense inside yourself. You don't lose your sensibilities about music. And so you want to find a way to make that music however you can. Right. And so, of course, there's nothing like the human touch. Having said that, there's a whole world out there of other possibilities that I, I find just, just completely fascinating. I really do. I mean, I spend every day here in this little room. I mean, I've got drums in here. But there's all kinds of really fascinating things out there that, you know, you can do stuff with. So I love spending time like in my room with my electronics and my computer. I, just, <laughs> I love it. So, I'm looking for, I don't know. I've always liked, liked it. In seven, 1973, I invested in one of the first electronic drum companies. So 
I've always been fascinated with this kind of stuff. So in your recordings, do they have both your real drum playing and synthesized drum yeah. percussion? Yeah. 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 Some don't, but I, I, this is why I got this stuff so I can combine that more with the electronics. That's very cool. Well, I think you're very, you're a very forward thinking, you know, there are people who just go, this is the way I've done things and I'm going to keep doing it this way. And I don't care what anyone says. That's right. And, and then there are other people who like to just keep expanding however they can. And I think that's really wonderful that you're doing that. It has to do with expanding like the music that you listen to, the music you, you know, that you look for new music, that you're not just stuck on the music you made all your life, that you, I like to actively pursue finding new music to listen to and enjoy and be inspired by. And now what I want to do is start putting the fruits of that work out there, you know? Yeah. And we'll post links or whatever we, we get from you so that the people can listen and watch whatever's there. And I'm really looking forward to hearing Drums of Compassion and, you know, we'll let people know for sure when thank you, it comes yeah. out. And Michael, again, thank you for your time. We're glad to see that you have made it through the pandemic in one piece. Yeah. And we'll talk again soon. Thank Take care, Julian. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This talk I had with Michael Shreve is now one of my favorite interviews. His stunningly spiritual music and fresh philosophy really connect with me. His story carries a crucial message. Don't stop doing what you love. Keep on creating. On our website, you can find links to Michael's website, to his podcast, Stick People, and to his new music, On Beyond Woodstock. We'll put up a link to his magnum opus, Drums of Compassion, when it's released. Here at Talking About Our Generation, we hope that you've been able to come through this difficult period unscathed, and that our podcast gives you a safe, enjoyable space to share some great memories and also talk about what we are up to today. We want this to be a conversation, so we'd really like to hear your thoughts about what you've heard and what you would like to hear on the podcast. You can share your comments and suggestions in a short audio clip, which we'll try to work into a future episode. You'll find instructions on our website for the very easy steps to submit your audio comments. That's at www.talkingaboutourgeneration.com. That's talking without the G and about without the A. And don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list on the website to be informed of upcoming episodes. You can hear all of our episodes via the website or on your favorite podcast platform. We're on all of them. Talking about our generation is a labor of love for us. If you like what you hear, you can donate through our website. Thanks in advance. I also want to take this opportunity to thank our producer, Rob Wilson, for his amazing work in putting these podcast episodes together, as well as a shout out to my old friend, Billy Aldridge, for his opening music. In closing, here's a clip from Michael's upcoming CD, Drums of Compassion, a magical piece called Water.
This is Julian G. Simmons at Talking About Our Generation. Thanks for listening. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests, as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the fair use section of U.S. copyright law, section 107, which reads, the fair use of a copyrighted work, for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at talkingaboutourgeneration.com.